Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 39 through 56. Our passage this morning is a linchpin passage. You may have read novels before where for one moment you're reading one story and then just as it gets exciting it flips to a, another story and back and forth. And you know at some point these stories are going to merge. They do in our passage. We've been hearing about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. And here in this passage they will meet so to speak, in while they're still in their mother's wombs. And they'll split apart again, but we'll hear them come together later on. So this passage uh, shows us the very beginning of the gospel and believers rejoicing together for the very first time that the Son of God has, after all these years, finally come into the world. This is God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has, sat, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. I'll read the next verse as well. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church, that you would teach us, that you would help us to rejoice with Mary and Elizabeth in the wonderful things that you have done for us. Give us joy, Lord, and be with us as you were with them that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know it comes around every year, like clockwork, right around Thanksgiving. You walk into a store, or you make the mistake of turning on the radio, 
and you hear the sound of bells ringing, and you know it's Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is back on the radio, or Wham's Last Christmas, or something like that, and you know, no, it's already here. The Christmas season has begun, and we emphasize the birth of Jesus Christ. Everybody's celebrating it. There's music, and rightly so, but sometimes we forget that the moment that Jesus was born was not the moment that God came into the world. It was his conception. He was Lord, as we see in our passage, while he was still in the womb. And this moment here in Luke is the earliest recorded moment in Scripture after the Son of God has come into the world, after the greatest moment that creation had ever seen, the Son of God took on flesh. This is the first moment that you see the sun rising, as it were, over the New Testament. We saw the horizon starting to turn red with the promise of the birth of the forerunner. And here, the light has finally crested. And it leads to joy and to singing and to hope. It is an intimate scene. It seems at first, at first glance, that there's only two people there, three, if we include John, to whatever extent uh, he has been given to know anything at this point um, about Jesus being there. It doesn't take place in a stable with animals and shepherds. This wonderful moment takes place in the hills of Judea, probably near Hebron. And God, in his kindness, has allowed us to come, as it were, into the room and to join these two godly women as they celebrate the dawning of the day of redemption. I've often thought how wonderful it would be to be a fly on the wall, as it were, in Luke 24 when God is, Jesus is walking with his disciples after the resurrection. They don't know it's him. And he's explaining through the Old Testament all these things that point to him in it. How wonderful it would be to be there, to hear Jesus explaining the New Testament. I feel the same way about this passage. This is a wonderful moment. These two godly women, Elizabeth and Mary, gathered together. No one else in the world knows that God has come but these women. And here they are celebrating it, rejoicing in it. How wonderful it would be to be there with them. You know, when, when the day dawns, you hear birds singing. And we see a lot of singing in the first couple of chapters of Luke. The dawn of the New Testament is appearing. Day is breaking. And the Holy Spirit leads people to break out in song in response, like the birds. God often does this at moments of great redemption. In Exodus, after God leads his people out of slavery and through the Red Sea, Moses breaks out into this song, the Song of Moses. It might be the oldest song we have. And here in the New Testament, we have more singing. Uh, the angels will sing. Simeon will sing. Anna will sing. Zechariah sings. Mary sings. We have these wonderful songs of praise and 
just outbursts, spirit-led outbursts of praise. And when Jesus returns, we see in Revelation, God will give us a new song. And we will sing that the day has dawned. This is a wonderful thing about God's saving work. It leads us to joy. Uh, and we see here in this passage two women rejoicing, as it were, secretly. Joseph is still in the dark. Zechariah, I don't know if what he knows is going on yet, um, but we are not in the dark. We are brought in in this wonderful moment to see the response, as it were, to be there with these two women. Now, it says in our verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. In those days isn't just an expression of at that time, around those, that time. It's not very clear when it is, but you can see from Gabriel's message to Mary earlier, he said that at the end of our last passage, that Elizabeth, her relative, was in her sixth month of pregnancy. We see Mary will stay with her for three months, and she leaves right before John is born. So that means that she leaves almost immediately to go to visit Elizabeth. And um, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he speaks of Jesus as having not yet been been conceived. That's something that will happen in the future. When Mary arrives, Jesus has been conceived already. So this is, Jesus is days old. This is faster than any pregnancy test. This is the earliest pregnancy test probably in the history of the world to this point. Jesus is incredibly tiny, but he is Jesus. He is Lord already. And so there's not two women here. We see gathered here Elizabeth and Mary. There is Jesus. There is John the Baptist. And there's the Holy Spirit. It is a small, wonderful gathering of God's people rejoicing. Now Mary, it's curious that Mary would even go on this journey in some ways. Mary is likely about 14 years old. That's just a little bit older than Jesus will be when he's, been, when he's left behind at the temple. And she's going to make this journey from Nazareth down from Galilee down to uh, the hill country of Judea. That's about 80 to 100 miles, probably a, a three to four day journey that she goes on. Gabriel did not command her to go on this journey. She just naturally goes, it says, with haste. There. Why does she go? Perhaps several reasons. One, Mary's, uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy was a sign for Mary. He says uh, that Elizabeth is pregnant. Uh, she's in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. So when she sees that Elizabeth, old Elizabeth, has conceived and is in her sixth month, it's more confirmation that uh, the, what the angel said is true. She doesn't need confirmation. She already believes. 
But God gives us things to strengthen our faith, like the Lord's Supper, to, to, to uh, make our faith even stronger. But also, it seems that God, in his kindness, provided just the right person in Elizabeth for Mary to confide. And who can Mary talk to right now about what God has done? How can she not, how can she hold it in? She's got to tell somebody, right? When God does wonderful things for us, what is our natural reaction? We want to share it. We want to share it with people who appreciate it and enjoy it. So God, in this way, this is one of the first signs of the Spirit, that he brings us together. We see it in our church membership. We see it in the Lord's Supper. God brings people together. When you are a Christian, you're a new Christian, you want to be with other Christians. And here, in God's kindness, he has given Mary a place to go. Elizabeth, her relative of all people, has also experienced a wonderful miracle. Elizabeth will believe Mary. Elizabeth will rejoice with Mary. And Elizabeth is a godly woman, an older woman, a much, much older than, than Mary. So we have this, maybe, I don't know, 60-year-old woman pregnant for the first time, and maybe a 14-year-old girl, virgin girl, both pregnant together. It's, an, it's a wonderful scene. And poor Zechariah, who can't hear probably and can't talk, who for the next three months is going to be running everywhere trying to figure out what meals they want to eat, taking care of a woman in her third trimester and another one in her first uh, but we have this, this wonderful scene here of them together. Elizabeth and Mary, for the next three months, we can only imagine what they would do. They would be encouraging one another, uh, confirming, conversing, believing what God has promised, thinking about the future, the days to come. This happens for every new parent, but especially for Elizabeth and Mary, how much they would think about what God is doing, what God is going to do with their boys. How should they raise them? Brothers and sisters, we need Christian fellowship. We need each other. And that is just the nat most natural thing in the world when God brings us together. The Holy Spirit brings unity. He doesn't just save us so that we all go out in our lives, continue to be individual and uh, distinct, I mean, we are distinct, but to go out and just be disconnected. God has brought us together. Paul calls it in Ephesians 4, the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And uh, even David sung of it in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How beneficial it is for us to fellowship and to magnify the Lord together. You know this on a small scale when you're watching the football game. You would, it's more exciting to be with other people who are cheering for the same team than just by yourself watching the game. But this is so much greater. God has brought us together. He's given us the same heart. Would Mary have this response? Would she have sung this song if she hadn't been with Elizabeth? Would Elizabeth have broken out in this praise? if Mary hadn't been there? Why is it that when two or three are gathered together in God's name, 
He promises to be there. You see, God loves unity. He, got, he loves unity partly because he is one. God is united. And so we see this in Jesus' prayer, as I mentioned earlier. They, Jesus prayed that we would be one even as he is one. He wants us to enjoy that unity, that wonderful, mysterious unity. And the Holy Spirit brings us together, just as he brought uh, Mary and Elizabeth together. And here, Jesus Christ is literally, physically present when two believers are brought together in his name. And the Holy Spirit is there too, causing them to rejoice, causing them to, to rejoice in the coming of Jesus. And isn't he in you also? Isn't Jesus with us? Should we not rejoice when we come together? Jesus is in our midst. The Holy Spirit is in our midst. We have reason to rejoice too. It is a wonderful thing what God has done for Mary, making her the mother of our Lord. But I would dare to say that it is much better to be related to Jesus spiritually, to know him as our Savior, than it is to be related to him physically. We have something to rejoice. God has done great things for us. And when we come together, we should, we should speak of these things. We should encourage each other to, to worship and to pray. Fellowship, not just on Sundays. We have a whole day. Spend time here afterwards. Stay as long as you want. Somebody will lock up. Get together outside during the week. We have this wonderful family. No one else in the world can really understand it who's not a Christian. It's a foretaste of heaven. And it is wonderful also for Mary to be in the presence of this godly woman who has experience. She's a, a, the, a wife of a priest. Well, one thing that's also interesting about this too is Elizabeth's heart. God has given Elizabeth the Spirit as well. And Elizabeth uh, is older. She's related. She's the wife of a priest. On, on the, outwardly, she is superior in every way. But when Mary comes, she feels she's the one who blesses Mary. It would be expected that Mary would pay homage to Elizabeth. But it's Elizabeth who pays homage to Mary. Blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of this, your womb. When the Holy Spirit works in our lives, it gives us, he gives us a low sense of ourselves and a high view of him and his dealings with us. Elizabeth feels unworthy to have Mary come into her presence, to have the Lord come. Why is, it, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. This is amazing. Who told Mary? I mean, who told Elizabeth that Jesus was born, that Jesus was conceived? There's no way for her to know except by the Spirit. The Spirit is working in John. The Spirit is working in Elizabeth, and they both have joy that Christ has come into the world. And it gives her this sense of lowliness. She reminds me, not surprisingly, I guess, of her son, John. John, later on, when Jesus comes, he says, 
you come to be baptized by me, who am I that you should come to me that I should baptize you? I should be baptized by you. He has that same spirit of unworthiness and, and yet rejoicing in Jesus' presence. And we have here gathered together Elizabeth, Mary, John, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's pouring out these fruits, her realization of Jesus being there, her sense of lowliness, her humility, her joy, and her love. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And we see that here. Elizabeth does not feel jealous or envious that Mary has come and has one-upped her, in a sense. Jealousy ruins unity. When we see someone with gifts superior, we might, it might cause us to, to be jealous. Mary has come in. Elizabeth, she's the wife of a priest. She's pregnant. A miracle has come. She's got a special baby that's coming, not just any baby. And then Mary comes in, and it's not the herald of the king who has come. It's the king who has come. But Elizabeth feels no envy, envy, no jealousy. Rather, she rejoices. Same for us, too. When we see other people with gifts that we don't have or greater gifts, we should rejoice because, you know what, those gifts were given to that person for you. I love to hear preachers who are way better than me all the time because their gifts were given for my sake. I get to listen to their sermons, and that's wonderful. We have we should rejoice in one another's gifts and how God has blessed us because he's given the, you those gifts for each other. That's what Elizabeth recognizes too. Jesus is not given to Mary alone. Jesus is given to Elizabeth. She calls him my Lord. She knows that Jesus will not just be the Savior of Mary. He will be the Savior of Elizabeth. He is given for us, and we can rejoice in that. Jealousy makes us unable to share in the joys of others, but humility, that brings joy. That brings joy. And Luke focuses our attention here, not in the rest of the three months that are, that are going on, but at this, this moment of arrival, at the sound of Mary's greeting, John leaps in the womb for joy. Elizabeth knows that Mary, not yet married, is somehow pregnant and pregnant with her Lord. So, the fruit of the Spirit brings them together. It brings, gives her humility. It gives her joy. And Mary also breaks out in joy this song of praise. It's called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is the Latin for magnifies. You can probably guess that's the way this song would start in the Latin. We don't speak Latin, so it's not, not that important, but it's a famous hymn, one of the most famous songs in the history of the church. My soul magnifies the Lord. So this, this joy is like reflecting off these women 
and Mary explodes here out in, in praise, this song of praise. And it is remarkable. It's remarkable. The whole thing is almost Scripture passages quoted together, brought together into one unity. But it is a song of praise, and it's kind of surprising that she doesn't really mention Jesus. And I wondered about this as I thought about why is this, this song not so much about the Son who is coming, but rather she reflects back on God's mercy and His character all throughout the Bible in this moment, which is the fulfillment of it all, really. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This reminds me, too, of the shorter catechism, the first question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Whereas Mary says, to magnify God and to rejoice in Him. She is living out her purpose, glorifying God and enjoying Him. She breaks out in this song, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then she says, Why? For he has looked down on me, on the humble estate of his servant. This is the same thing that Elizabeth said, isn't it? Back in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This sense of lowliness is accompanied with a sense of awe. That in what God has done, I am lowly. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I am lowly. Who am I that God would send his son for me? That God will look down on me. That he wouldn't even notice me. Who am I? And she's amazed at this. She rejoices in this. We ought to rejoice in this too. Who are we? Really? That Jesus would be here today with us. That Jesus would give his life as an atoning sacrifice for you. He is the king of heaven. Angels line up to do his will. Who are we that he would come to wash your feet, to serve you, to bear your sins? Who are we? It is something to rejoice in. He has come to do these things. And Mary breaks out in praise at the very thought, God has looked upon me. It's also like Hagar when she said, Genesis 16, you are a God of seeing, for you have truly, for you have truly seen, for truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God is a God who sees us. He knows us. He cares about us. He sends his son for us. So she rejoices that in God's mercy shown to him. We also see here she calls God her Savior. It's not the main point, but it's worth mentioning. Mary needed salvation just like us. She recognizes that she needs a Savior because she was a sinner like us. And God is her Savior. He has come. So she rejoices. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
holy is his name. So first, she notes God's, God's mercy in looking down upon the weak. Secondly, she notes his power, which she connects with his holiness. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Moses does this too in the Song of Moses. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? His song is long, and uh, it goes through much of Scripture as well. uh, Mary's song pulls from that song of Moses. She pulls especially from the song of Hannah, but she pulls from all over the Bible too in, in, in rejoicing in God's attributes. Phil Riken notes that in this little song, Mary quotes or alludes to Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. It would take too long for me to trace down all these quotes to show you. But one thing that shows us is that little Mary, this young godly woman, had a mind that was full of Scripture. And for you children out there, today is a good day for you to learn Scripture. Uh, You can memorize it much faster than we who are older. But for you who are older... Don't stop just because you're not a child anymore. Get, you have to think of something, right? How many songs do you have stuck in your head? You can memorize Scripture too. And it gives Mary the words to express her joy. It helps her to see how I can praise God and what I can praise Him for. It helps her to know who God is to know his power and his might, his mercy. And another thing that shows us, besides that you should memorize Scripture and be much in the Word, is that we can take Scripture from all over the place and bring it into one unified song because God is the same all the way through Scripture, from Genesis all the way down to Luke. He doesn't change. So we can say, God is merciful, and we can look through the whole Bible and see that is the case. That is the case this morning, too. God is powerful. It was the case, that was the case all the way through Scripture. It's the case this morning, too. God is faithful. That's the last thing that Mary will focus on in this song, his covenant faithfulness. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, all the way through God is the same. And that includes generations past. It includes generations in the future. It includes this generation. God is the same in all these things. And we can rejoice. So Mary moves from just praising God to in general, but then praising Him for His attributes. She doesn't speak of His attributes in general, in abstract terms, but how those attributes have worked out in her own life. God has shown his mercy to me in noticing me. He has shown his power, his covenant faithfulness to me. But this leads her to praise for what God has done for his people throughout all time. 
all these same things. So he says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his heart, their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She's not just speaking of herself here. She's speaking of all of God's people. For all of us have a magnificat to sing of our own, don't we? God is the same throughout all history to all his people, but his story of mercy and power and faithfulness in your life is unique. And in heaven, you will sing praise of what God has done in your life, and it will connect with the worship of all the other saints of old, like so many different instruments in a huge symphony of praise to God. And that is wonderful that we will be able to do this together and see God, how God has worked out his mercy, his strength, his faithfulness in each of our lives. This song also has severity in it. Behold both the mercy and the severity of the Lord. Those who are lowly, God raises. Those who are proud, God brings down. And this, this we see as another theme throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world that no human being might boast in the presence of God, but that we might boast in the Lord. God brings down in this song those who are proud of, in their intellect, in verse 51, in their powerful positions, in verse 52, in their wealth, verse 53. That's, that's what this world boasts of, isn't it? How smart we are, what we've attained, our positions, what we have, what we own, all of those are brought down by the Son of God. He, he, he lifts up those who are humble. He shows grace to the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. They are scattered. They are brought down. They are sent away empty. But you notice, too, the rich are sent away empty while they're still rich. It's not they, they go and then, then they become empty. They're sent away already. There is an emptiness about merely worldly wealth. We will be filled, though, those who come to God with nothing, nothing in our hand we bring, come by wine, by milk, without money, without cost. This is a theme throughout Scripture. God has raised up the lowly, and he brings down the mighty. He lifted up Joseph. He lifted up Moses. He lifted up David. He lifted up Daniel from the dust. He's brought down Pharaoh, Goliath, Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, and Haman. It's all throughout Scripture. He brings down the proud, and he raises those who are lowly, who humble themselves before him. We see it all through Luke in his teaching. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. There is the parable of the rich fool who 
saw all that he had. And he said, I'll build bigger barns for myself. And he didn't know that God had required his life of him that very night. There's the parable of the poor widow who put in more. God saw that with her two coins than everybody else who was giving. There is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who was wealthy in this world, but then it leads him to suffering. And Lazarus, Lazarus who is brought to everlasting glory. Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He says that as the conclusion of his parable of the Pharisee who said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other people. I fast twice a week. I give, I give tithes of all that I own. And the, the tax collector behind him, way back there somewhere, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, Behold, this man goes, ahead, goes home justified. He sends, he, he filled the hungry with good things. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Rejoice. You will be filled. Do you think you're righteous on your own? You will be sent away empty. This is the requirement that God gives to us to come to him, to be filled. A sense of our need. Humility. That we come and ask him to do it all for us. Because we can do nothing. He says, finally, behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Most of all, we see this great reversal in the life of our Lord Jesus. He became lowly, and he will be further brought low as the servant of all. He will not only wash our feet, but bear our sins. And it is this Jesus who is exalted above every name now. He's on the throne all who humble themselves before him will likewise find mercy and grace like Mary and Elizabeth. This is the God, not just of Luke 1. It is the God of 2024. It is the God of all of Scripture. Mary found him to be so. So will all of you who come to him for mercy and grace. He has done great things for you. Let us sing a song of praise to him as well. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy coming down to earth, for finding joy, bringing joy to your people when we come together. We thank you for the wonderful things that you have done in each of our lives. Help us to share with one another that we might rejoice in you and might encourage each other in praise to you. Help us, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, that we might partake in faith, that we might grow in grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.